This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm recording this episode in San Francisco, which is pretty cool. Even cooler, I'm here with documentarian Ken Burns, who you know from making a million things. Civil War, baseball, how many more? 32. 32. And we're here today to talk about the Vietnam War, which, depending on when you hear this, should be airing on PBS. Starting Sunday, September 17th. And eventually you can watch it, I'm assuming, online. Eventually at some point it migrates somewhere else. Immediately you can stream the first five episodes that Sunday, and then the following Sunday when the second five get launched, you can stream the others, and then it's a weekly series, and there the DVDs are available on the 19th, and it's going to run as a weekly series until Christmas, and it'll be hard to miss. Ten episodes. Eighteen hours. Eighteen hours. So I've watched three of the hours so far. They're great. I, you know, this is a really complicated story. It needed that amount of time. It's something that Americans don't really want to talk about. And if they do, they sort of just default to a kind of binary one and zero dialectic, you know, good, bad, red state, blue state. And it's important, it seemed to us, to unpack that stuff. Was this always on the list of things you wanted to get to or did something push you there? So I did a film in 1990 on the Civil War, and we literally afterwards sort of said no more wars. It was tough. It was just tough to do, to handle the emotion, to handle the death, to handle all the images that aren't in the film that we sort of wisely edited out. The Civil War soldiers, when they'd been in battle, said they'd seen the elephant, which I guess is the the sort of most exotic thing they could think of. And, And we'd kind of seen it, too, in a kind of platonic way, a shadow in the cave. And didn't want to do it. But at the end of the 90s, I heard that a thousand veterans, American veterans of the Second World War were dying each day and that an unacceptable number of graduating high school seniors thought we fought with the Germans against the Russians in the Second World War. And I said, okay. So okay. I dove into that. If you're going to fix every flaw <clears throat> in the American educational system, I'm you've got to make a lot more movies. Or i got to live forever. Yeah, do it right. And then even before the war was, we called it the war, was broadcast in the fall of 2007, probably the late winter or early winter of in 2006, we, we just, I just said, I turned to Lynn Novick, who was the co-director on that, as she is on the, on the Vietnam thing, and I just said, we've got to do Vietnam. And so we've spent the last 10 and a half years. Meanwhile, making other films, so, you're prolific. As so you, as essentially, and Lynn, and Lynn too, but we, you know, for a long while it was me out on the road raising money and sort of trying to get some critical mass of funding in order to be able to do it. And then starting in earnest, it's been her number one gig for most of the last several years. And then I've, I've had lots of other things. Is there something you want to correct with this? Because I'm old. I was born while the war was still going on, and in my mind, I've seen many versions of this war told, many movies, starting Apocalypse Now, for, for many years later. A lot of the footage I'm familiar with. Is there something that you want me to see that I don't know? Yeah, you're going to see a lot of footage you've never seen sure. before. Access has been unusual to from Soviet and other archives, Vietnamese archives. But, you know, we've we've essentially been imprisoned by a conventional wisdom about it. Um, a lot of it has to do with that we don't want to talk about it, or if we do, we get into an argument about it. And also when Americans talk about the Vietnam War, they just want to talk about themselves. And it's really important to understand it now that we're 42 years out from the fall of Saigon, that we triangulate, not just the, the perspective that can be gained from the passage of time, but the kind of triangulation that can take place by 
realizing that this was a war with three other countries, one of whom disappeared. And so we've done extensive interviews with North Vietnamese soldiers and civilians in Hanoi and Viet Cong guerrillas and the Arvin, those are the South Vietnamese soldiers, our erstwhile allies. It's, it's one of the really striking things about it is when you see someone explaining what it was like to shoot the Americans and you realize, oh, wait, we've, that's we've, right. We've got a couple of battles where we've got the guy shooting at the American and the Arvin and we've interviewed the Arvin and the American and that kind of being able to see that from that multidimensional point of view. When I was making my film on jazz, Wynton Marsalis said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing can happen at the same time. And in war, there can be more than one truth. We sort of, in our moralistic world, want to say one plus one always equals two, but what we look for in something else is the acknowledgement that sometimes one and one equals three in our faith, in our art, in our whatever it is that compels us, love. And so... We realized that it would be possible to make a, a space, a place where all these divergent points of view could come together. No, we wouldn't make anybody wrong. We would just look at it. You know, there's lots of arguments about Vietnam, like we should have done this or we could have done this or if we did this, this would have happened. But it didn't happen that way. Stuff happened and we just want to report on it without any agenda, without any thumb on the scale. We can get a whole discussion about objectivity and subjectivity, yeah. but you, you really think that you are a neutral arbiter in the telling of this story? Never. And the, You're not. We can, we can um, dismiss that, you know, there's only one person who's objective, and that's God, and she's not telling. So, you know, the rest of us are labor under subjectivity. What we wanted to do was be aware of whatever baggage we brought. I grew up. In the war, I had a high draft number in the last year of the, the lottery. We wanted to be mindful of what those, the, the, the things we carried into it, as Tim O'Brien would say. And he's in the movie. And we wanted to free ourselves as much as we could. Now, I was the, reading an interview where you said you would snip out bits of interviews where you well, thought they the were last, too subjective. The last bit of editing was really removing adverbs and adjectives because you just didn't need to do it or just leaving an obvious thing out. There was no need. And so, you, you know, if Richard Nixon did something great, we'll say this was really great. If he showed himself in a tape, we didn't need to say how venal that is. We just had to say, here's him speaking in the tape. And and that's really important to gain the trust of people. The, the assumption is when they say, who's your audience? I say, everybody's like, oh, yeah, no, right. But it is. We get high ratings in Arkansas and Oklahoma and Alaska, as well as we have in San Francisco and Boston. The opening frames of the movie, you're showing footage. Again, some of it is familiar to me in, in the most faint, like there's a very famous execution photo I guess it's during Tet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, oh, I have seen this. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. This You're showing in reverse. You reverse the footage. What is the point of, of doing that at it's, the beginning of the movie? It's what I said is that we are jammed with all these familiar images from Vietnam. And that helps reinforce a kind of superficial understanding of the war or ratifies our conventional wisdom. 
and that's not good if you're going to really come to terms with what I think, what Lynn and I think is the most important event in the second half of the 20th century for Americans. And a good deal of the disunion and the lack of civil discourse and the kind of degraded politics we experience today really metastasized in Vietnam. So it was important for us to unpack it, to literally, let's just go back. And so the, f- the first image of that scene is, is, is a helicopter jumping out of the South China Sea under the deck of an aircraft carrier. The, you know, the symbolic thing of pushing an aircraft carrier over, the like, waste of, of effort and money to, to, to do that. And then going through many familiar images, back to a French soldier walking backwards through a rice paddy. And then we repack. You'll see all of those images going forward in the mm-hmm. course of the next 17 hours and 50 minutes. And that was important. But they'll now come with context. They'll now come with a more complicated set of perspectives that permit you, we hope, to liberate yourself from whatever kind of lead, lead weights that conventional wisdom represents. The, in one of the interviews, one of the bits I saw, one of the combatants says, I will talk about this candidly. He's talking about an atrocity. Uh, other people won't, but please be careful with this because I could get in trouble. Yeah. How, how often did you encounter someone who's alive today? They're thinking about the repercussions of what they're saying, admitting to in real time. Very little. The person you're referring to was an NVA soldier, a North Vietnamese soldier, and so they are still a repressive communist regime, and there is not a free press, and there is a party line, and that party line still to this day does not acknowledge the the atrocity that he is referring to and was aware of and probably participated in. And I at one point took it out thinking that that you know, his, his, his self-referential moment, thinking that that would, you know, was unnecessary. It, it kind of, it didn't work. And I put it back in because it restores the urgency of the situation and reminds you that this is about memory and reflection and something that happened a while ago. But, but you know, we have a lot of people from North Vietnam saying, or from Vietnam saying stuff that I, you know, every documentary filmmaker wants a scoop, but we invited the ambassador to the United States and to the UN, the same person in and said, look, we don't want anybody to get in trouble. And he looked at it and some of it you could see he was sucking in his breath, but he's, you know, they're old, they're celebrated, you know, war heroes. So you don't think there's going to be consequences for I, that person? I don't. I think that there's another soldier on the US side who admits to another atrocity. It's in the same episode. He's not going to get prosecuted for it. No. I think what you'll have is the possibility to create a space where you can have a conversation about these sorts of things. You know, when you have a, a modern war and it's so covered so completely or so well as Vietnam was with a liberated press corps, which doesn't happen anymore, you know, got a few lessons issuing out of Vietnam. We're not going to blame the soldiers anymore. That's permanent, I, as far as I can tell. And we're not going to let the press have free access. They didn't have it in World War II. They didn't have it in Korea, but they had it in Vietnam. And now we have a wonderful world word that gets everybody excited, embedded, which means that they're surrounded by a scrum of... of um, personnel that keeps them from seeing a little girl running down a street naked on fire from napalm or seeing, you know, the head of the South Vietnamese National Police assassinate on the spot a North Vietnamese spy named Lem in a little checkered shirt on the streets of Saigon during the Tet Offensive. So I was going to get to that, um, but let's go there. So what do you, as you think about, I mean, again, it's astonishing the footage that you're seeing. One, it's astonishing footage. And two, a lot of it's astonishing because you see that it's an American reporter on the scene saying this, I'm watching this, I've been shot, things that you just never see today. How do you think that's going to affect 
future versions of the work that you do when you try to tackle the Iraq war or a conflict like that? You know, it's interesting. I am in the middle, you know, the, for the rest of the world, finishing the film is the thing. The, the finished film, what's shown is the thing. For me, it's the process of making it. And if I can sort of convince myself when I put my head on my pillow that I've made that film better that day, I feel a little bit better, I go to sleep a little bit faster. So I'm in deep in the editing of a film that's completely different. It's a history of country music. It's points of anxiety for me are the same. The process is always the same, and the question is always the same, the larger question. I've made the same film over and over again, and it's just saying, who are we? Who are these strange and complicated people who like to call themselves Americans? And what does an investigation of this specific topic tell us about who we are and where we were and where we might be going? But just in terms of documenting and what sort of things were documented at the time, what sort of things are available for you to look at, Skipping all the way to now, where everyone's got a phone, everyone's documenting yeah. everything at the same time. doesn't mean they're telling the truth. It means they're documenting. How do you think that's going to uh, affect someone going back and creating a history of 2017? You, you know, Lincoln, frustrated with his generals in 1861 and 1862, you know, somebody was complaining about them too. He said, we'll just use the tools we have. I mean, I don't mean to belittle this age of technology, but when the telegraph came along, people thought, okay, this is the death of this, and this, everything's going to change from now on. You know, So each of the technologies, you add the telephone, and you add the phonograph, and you add radio, and then you add television, and then you have the world we live in now, all of them represent significant technological changes in which we absorb. I mean, we'll be taking stuff off iPhones from soldiers if we do another war, and they'll have seen it. There'll be a certain immediacy. People come up to me, sometimes older audiences, and say, you know, people don't write letters anymore, and so how are we going to be able to to tell the story of, you know, the way you did the Civil War. It's going to be a selfie. It's going to be a selfie, and it's going to be, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, you know, I'm here, I'm in this APC, you know, it's pretty tough today, and we're going to get it firsthand, and maybe it won't have the poetry of that, but we got a kid in Vietnam who's sending reel-to-reel tapes back to Missouri, and the folks in his parents' general store crowd around, and they're saying, hey, you know, I just broke up with Darlene, and now I'm, I'm, I'm really on the prowl and I'm hunting this and I've got a new car this and it's just like it is as revealing as anything you'd ever want to hear so I think that we're always as documentarians as sort of hunter-gatherers going to be willing to just accept that it's going to be not a big stack of um papers and old photographs, but it's going to be digital files and email records and texting records and is that really different? I mean, I suppose you can make I just a think there's a deluge of stuff that just you, your work will be that much harder because you're going to have that many more iPhone files to go through. There, you know, you're, that's very smart. There is a tyranny of choice, just as there is a tyranny of no choice. You know, there's a really wonderful moment in this movie, Moscow on the Hudson, when Robin Williams starts off the film as a concert, I think a he plays a cello or something in a, in, a, in a Moscow symphony, and he's waiting in line for, he doesn't know what, and he gets there and there's nothing there. 
the tyranny of no choice. And then he's going to go try to get some coffee from a New York City supermarket, and the guy says, aisle three, and there's now a thousand choices. And he faints dead away. And that's the tyranny of choice. It's just all how you look at it. We had huge volumes of material. The Second World War is the greatest cataclysm in human history. There's lots of stuff on it. So, you know, we figured out a way in seven and a half years of, of sifting to get what we thought was good admittedly from consciously and intentionally from American perspective. It probably would have taken us 20 years if we said we were going to do it from the Japanese and the Russian and the British and the German and Italian and all of the allies. But Vietnam has taken 10 years in large measure because it's been a hunter-gathering and then collating job. I have many more questions. I'm going to try to narrow some of them down while we take a very quick break to hear from our sponsor. Back here with Ken Burns. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Maybe you're an engineer, moved to the U.S. Maybe you're a business owner trying to pay suppliers in another country. You're a freelancer getting paid by someone in a foreign country. You should use TransferWise. When it comes to sending money, banks are stuck in the past. TransferWise is the future. Go to the future. It's better there. You pay into a local account and TransferWise pays your recipient from an account in their country. Currencies don't need to cross borders. And that should matter to you because let's TransferWise do things your bank can't. They charge one low fee that give you a great low rate. And unlike your bank, TransferWise payments take seconds to set up. See how much you could save by going to TransferWise.com. You can download the app from Apple Store or Google Play. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer like I got to transfer money from one country to another country. And wise like I'm a wise person who listens to Recode Media. It's TransferWise, W-I-S-E dot com. I'm back here with Ken Burns talking about the Vietnam War and the work you put into this thing. I was telling you I watched this on a, on a laptop with crappy Wi-Fi. It still looks and sounds great. It's very cinematic, which sounds trite to say, but it's not the case when you're talking about the Civil War, right? It, it looks like you've done some really, really sophisticated stuff, stitching stuff together. So when you're describing a battle, it looks like you're Steven Spielberg creating a battle scene, but it's obviously all through documentary footage. Is this something new for you, that kind of work? I don't think so. I think that each project has its own sets of demands of how you're going to treat it. And if you're limited entirely, as we were, to still photographs, you're dealing with what film directors call mise-en-scene. You're taking a photograph and treating it as a master shot. That's the Ken in, Burns effect. In, into which you've got a long shot, a medium shot, a close-up, an extreme close-up, a tilt, a pan, a reveal, yeah. an isolation of details. And so you're sort of in the sort of willing alive, this stuff. Now, if you've got footage, you've got a different set of exigencies. And in this case, we, you know, it fit the music. I mean, the, our soundtrack is is important. It's very funny. It's always struck me as crazy, and we've never done it as filmmakers for 40 years, which is soundtracks are added at the end to amplify emotions you hope you hope are there. We bake them in at the beginning. Like our music is as important as the narration that we're writing or the testimony that we're hearing from or the footage or the sound effects or the or the talking heads. And that's great. It makes music organic and not some sort of added thing. It's 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 not icing. It's fudge. So again, in in the parts that I've seen, there's music that I associate with movies about the Vietnam War. There's White Rabbit from Jefferson Airplane, and then all of a sudden there's a Beatles song, and you really don't get Beatles songs, you know, original you know. Beatles tracks so in here, almost anything. Here's so the this deal. from Revolver, right? Mm-hmm. And it's during a battle scene. Mm-hmm. How'd you get it? So we have many Beatles songs, and we have 120 pieces of found music. I mean, we have 
almost three hours of original music that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails composed for us. And we also invited Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble in and gave them uh, Vietnamese lullabies and folk songs that everyone north and south would have recognized from that period, would recognize to this day. And then they bent them in their unusual way. But then in addition, we have 120 takes. Now, if we were... uh, you know, a PBS documentary film company or a a film company associated with PBS, I should say, we could maybe afford 10 songs, 12 songs, and uh, none of them would be Beatles songs. But we went early on to all of those people, to the Beatles or to their estates, and said what we wanted to do. And to an artist, they all said, fine, we'll give you this most favored nation's rate. And that permitted us to have those 120 things. So we got Otis Redding and and, um, Marvin Gaye. We have Nina Simone, and we have Buffalo Springfield, and we've got the animals. Anyone you couldn't get? Led Zeppelin's notoriously difficult. We've got two or three Led Zeppelins. You got Zeppelin. And we've got many Beatles and lots of Bob Dylan and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and... Um, Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel and or is it just say Simon and Garfunkel it's a phenomenal track and we just vowed to ourselves and then to them that we would never play a song that you couldn't hear on Armed Forces Radio or on your transistor radio when you were marching against the war and then you went and created your own audio as well right in addition to the Trent Reznor score like when there's gunfire that sounds about 90 90, cinematic again 90% 90% of, maybe even 95% of the footage that we get is silent MOS, mid-out sound from the old German directors in Hollywood, MOS. And yeah, we build town tracks. So they're as complicated as any feature film. And I've always been like that. Civil War, Battle of Gettysburg has, you know, you know, dozens and dozens of tracks going at once. It's because I just refuse to sort of do the documentary thing, which is I only need to put a few, you know, tromp, tromp, tromp of the German troops marching into Poland. Uh, bang, crash. You know, we our sound editors and editors went out into woods with AK-47s and M16s and pumpkins and squash. That's a real AK-47 mm-hmm. that you've recorded in or we've, a few we've years found ago. or acquired other soundtracks and we built them. And this is what sound editing is all about. And for me, it's waking the dead. You know, you you don't want to do just you know that kind of classic British documentary where you see the trump, trump, trump of the troops, and that's the only sign. How do you think people are—do you imagine people are going to watch this on a 60-inch TV? Are you aware that it's going to happen? I mean, have you acceded to the fact that it's going to be reviewed on an iPhone at some point? Yeah, there'll be lots of people who will do that, but there'll be millions and millions of people who watch it on TV, and I've got to assume that most of them have a pretty good TV, and if they do— uh, they're great. If they have a fantastic TV, this is going to just blow their minds because it's, you know, 5.1 surround and it, their bullets go across the screen and planes go across the screen and stuff happens in it. So you're Ken Burns, so you can go get the Beatles, you can get Led Zeppelin. Um, I assume you can well, get it's an actually interview. Sarah Botstein, who's the lead producer, who is our tenacious wrangler of that. And, and friends, you know, we when we made our jazz series, uh, we worked with Jeff Jones, who was then at Columbia, now the head of Apple, and we did an unusual thing there. We took the two biggest producers, you know, uh, you know, of, of records, publishers of records, and put them together. They're natural competitors. And that represented about 60% of jazz. And then we went to the other smaller labels and said, look, let's all do this. So when we have a greatest of, it isn't that the greatest when you were on deck, it's the greatest across your entire life. What I was going to ask is, is you have access to lots of things. I assume lots of people, and maybe I missed it because I've only seen two of the episodes so far, but 
I didn't see John McCain. And I mean, there's John McCain archival footage. So, there's Henry Kissinger archival footage. It doesn't right. look like you're talking to those people. No. And I assume that's intentional. Oh, intentional from the very beginning. In fact, one of the first meetings I took is I went and saw John McCain. I saw John Kerry. I said, look, we're going to make this film. You're going to be in it archivally, but we're not going to interview you. Because? They're in the public sphere today, and they've got an interest, however conscious or subconscious, in kind of burnishing an image. Certainly Kissinger has that. Jane Fonda has that. They're all in the film, but they're not going to be So there's a POW story. It makes you think of John McCain, but you, right. you'd rather hear from that person than John McCain. That's right. You want because you've heard John McCain's story so many times? No. No, because no, his story is in there, and it's very poignant, and it's incredible, the footage from the French journalist. And, and we learned uh, from his people uh, a lot of context uh, to that, that that very celebrated interview, which he hates because he thinks it shows weakness, was done after many, many bones were set without so much of a, as an aspirin. And then afterwards, they beat him because he wasn't sufficient grateful to his captives. So that adds a little dimension on John McCain's heroism. And then, you know, instead of just quoting one line from Kerry's testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, it's we quoted extensively, and, and it's it's really brought to life in that way. And, and same with Jane Fonda. We found new footage, and uh, same with Kissinger. He's there on the tapes, and a lot of what he says on film, in other films, belies what he says in the tapes and so you just don't want and I'm not in the gotcha business I just I'm in the like I you know I want to be about facts what happened and so you know we don't need them there they're huge characters in the film significant particularly Kissinger and, and Carrie and McCain but so it's not that you want to tell the story from the perspective of sort of people who are underfoot. It's just that you don't want Henry Kessinger's revised history. Right. Or any or John McCain's or John Kerry's, however conscious or unconscious it might be. It's just smart to do it that way. Just as we made the decision, there'd be no historians in our World War II film or no historians in this one. You know, there are people who've written books that turn up that are grunts. And we don't tell you who they are until the end of the film. You don't have to know that Carl Marlantis, the first talking head that you see in the film, wrote a novel about it. You'll find out at the end of the 18 hours. But it's And not everybody's like that. Most of them are so-called ordinary people. And what we've learned, particularly from all of our histories, but I'd say essentially from the war films, is that there are no ordinary people. So there are obvious not parallels. When you watch a Vietnam War movie in 2017, there's lots of stuff to think about that's happening in, in the real world. Yeah. And, and divided America, et cetera. Obviously, if you started this 10 years ago, different setting. So so think about think about this. I mean, if I can just, sure. you know, just go for a second. When we said yes to this, Barack Obama was a month or two away from declaring that he was going to be this challenger, this improbable challenger to the front front runner, Hillary Clinton. Not only did he overtake her and win the nomination, but he won the election against John McCain and then won a second term. And now he's out of office. You know, it'll be, you know, eight months by the time this is broadcast. So then let me tell you what this film is about. It's about mass demonstrations in cities all across the country, about a white House in disarray, a White House frustrated with leaks, a White House uh, with a president at the top who's sure that the news media is making stuff up. It's about a big document drop of hacked documents, you know, classified material into the public sphere that's embarrassing and, and counterfactual or, or to what's been said in policy uh, for many, many administrations. It's about asymmetrical warfare where the mighty might of the United States military seems incapable of sort of making a dent. And it's about an alleged um, 
a political campaign that allegedly reaches out to a foreign power at the time of a national election to try and determine that election. So and how about that? So, so what do we learn from that, that history repeats itself? History that, does not repeat the itself. the timing is crazy. And you're not condemned to repeat what you don't remember. Here's what it is. Human nature it remains the same. And human nature superimposes itself over the seemingly random chaos of events. Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. If, that, if he did say that, it's wonderful. And I've spent my entire professional life sort of listening to the rhymes, the patterns, the motifs, the echoes of things. And so what you have is that human nature doesn't change. And so we never once while we were making the film, never in the entire 10 years do we go, wow, isn't that a lot like Iraq? Or isn't that like Afghanistan? Or isn't this kind of like now? I mean, we finished it before Trump was in office, but we were not unmindful, even back when we started it, that there were so many parallels. Is there any temptation to go as you're finishing up, boy, we should get some footage of Donald Trump explaining that his personal his personal Vietnam was avoiding getting STDs. Well, that to me would be the classic example of a thumb on the scale. So the the film goes up to the present. Now, Obama made a trip there and said something there, and it's sort of the last kind of contemporary thing before we go into our coda and denouement, where you learn the fates of all the folks that you've been caring about for the last ten episodes. To put Donald Trump into it is is a way of of being cute. It's it's a cheap. It's an easy layup, right? And you want to hit three-pointers from half court. You know what I mean? You'll miss a lot of times, but you want to try it from there and not not the easy layup. I've done a bunch of these now in a hundred or so episodes, Eric. It's a bunch. Um, It's a bunch, and I've been lucky enough to talk to a bunch of directors. I think all of them are making something that is either debuting or coming almost immediately after it shows up in a theater to Netflix or Amazon. Mm Mm-hmm. You are someone I always associate with PBS. Most of your films, all, yeah, of, your films, all of them, every um, single one, every single one. Have you ever thought about going somewhere else? I'm assuming that whatever PBS offers you, Reed Hastings would be happy to do the same, yeah, or more. They might, but here's the thing: nobody, the business, mo- there's no business model for PBS, and there's no business model for what I do. PBS has one foot tentatively in the marketplace, and the other proudly out of it. When your house is on fire at 3 a.m., do you call the marketplace? No, you do not. When you expect boots on the ground at at Normandy or Kandahar, do you expect that the marketplace is going to take care of that? No, you do not. And I am not suggesting that PBS has anything to do with the defense of the country. I do actually believe that it makes the country worth defending because we, on a very small budget and much maligned, make some of the best children's and the best science and the best nature and all sorts of programming. But my point is, is that I was with the head of HBO, who's a friend, Richard Plepler, and someone quite naturally said, we'd screen an episode of that. And he said, well, why don't you, why isn't Ken with you? And he, and he paused for a second. And I just filled the void. And I said, because you wouldn't spend as much as we spent over 10 years to make the Vietnam. And that's the point here. So this will end up on Netflix. As, as most of my stuff is, or in some other place, as well as available on PBS and the, all the streaming stuff, and I mean, all the platforms. But the original place is this unique. It sounds, you know, to me, it's like the tortoise and the hare fairy tale when we were growing up, you know? The hare inevitably gets kind of tired and lies down, and the tortoise just keeps going. Let's stipulate that between Jeff Bezos and Richard Plepler and Reed Hastings, 
you could get what you want in terms of resources and time, and you could do what you want, and you could maybe, do more. Maybe, but I'd still have but somebody. You, but you like PBS. You like the value. I like the values values of PBS. I like the fact that it's not the S doesn't sound for stand for system, but for service, and that the most important thing, the P, is what I'm into. But you know, maybe they would do that. But there would still be a suit, or maybe an open collared person, who would say, you know what. Too long. Make, too it, short, make it two years. Not sexy enough. Too sexy. Too violent. Not violent enough. Every single film I've made for public television has been my director's cut. I don't, I mean, some of the times my writers, because we have to cut stuff out, are happy to have DVD extras. I'm bored by them. I, I want you to watch my film because I can say to you that if you don't like it, it's all my fault. And I know lots of friends in Hollywood who still say, well, they wouldn't let me use this actress or they wouldn't. I wanted to go with this writer yep. or I really wanted to have this scene. But no, I think Reed Hastings will, will let you do what you want, but I'll, I'll let it go. Yeah, um, no, I think he would. And, and, you know, we've had conversations with them about that stuff. But I, I'm, I'm at the dance with them that rung me and I think I'm leaving with them. For a long time, if you thought about documentaries, thought about you. And in the last few years, because of Amazon and Netflix, I think primarily HBO to some extent, big, it seems to be a giant boom in documentaries. They seem to be something that are made fairly easily, fairly quickly at a price, and, and the streaming services there seem to gravitate to them. What do you think about that that explosion of documentaries? I, I don't actually agree completely because uh-huh. I remember in 85 when I came out with my third or fourth film on Huey Long, The Turbulent Southern Demagogue, uh, there was an amazing article in the New York Times about it. was a good history echoing there. Yeah, I mean, but it, there was Fred Wiseman there and there was um, Errol Morris and there was, yes. you know, all this sort there of stuff. There have been other people. And, and, and they were all, it, it was an article about how diverse documentary was. I think we've been in a golden age for decades. But what the streaming services do is, and, and what, frankly, is in contrast to some bankrupt sort of uh, evidence on the fictional side, which is these franchises where you've got Batman 47 yeah. or, you know, Iron Man 63. Avengers just, in space. It, you just, you have a thing and what, what you realize in Hollywood is that essentially each of the, the films can be reduced to some plot. Now there's some incredibly great artists who are friends of mine who transcend that regularly there. But for the most part, the the tiredness of, of the plots are replaced by the freshness of, of a documentary, which is just this is what happened and there's something incredible. But we're doing both, exciting. right? They're making X-Men 44 and they're making a million different documentaries. Right. So so that and that satisfies I guess a a lot of chirping chicks in the nest. Um but the interesting thing is and I think it's really important to remember that the same laws of storytelling apply to me as they do to Steven Spielberg and I've talked to him about it to drop a name about how we do the same thing. And, you know, he can make stuff up, I can't. But the same laws of, if you want to get technical, Aristotelian poetics. And all Aristotle did in his essay was describe a beginning, a middle, an end, a protagonist, an antagonist, a climax, a denouement, all the things that we know. You know, there are people who make money selling books about how to write a screenplay in Hollywood when the best screenwriters have never cracked a book formula about it. That's the essence. People want to be told stories. And we're now at an age, and maybe I'm coming around to agreeing with you, where we are beginning to understand that that documentaries, and maybe it's that the documentarians have begun to understand that these are not necessarily didactic 
lessons and telling you what you should know, but things that are informed by the same kind of dramatic impulses and laws that govern a feature film. And you'll see that in all the films that you're thinking right now that have been filling up you know, our airwaves over the last few years. Do you go back and think about, boy, if, if I had the access to the sophisticated equipment, the, that much cheaper, that much lighter, boy, the film I would have made 30 years ago would have been astonishingly no, different. Or never. it's the same movie. Never, it's always the same movie. And it's always the same stuff. And no, comp- I mean, maybe for you guys, but, you know, I, I don't think a computer ever saved me any paper, which was one of its arguments. I, it took me six months to learn how to print something in the new office. Yeah. I'm one of the only people who's printed something there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and I meet a lot of people who are paperless. And yeah. so I, I realize that my old foginess, uh, you know, has a kind of statute of limitations of tolerance of it. But I, I, but I just think that, I mean, you know, the films take the same amount of time. It's, a, it's a, I supposedly close. But I still shoot film sometimes. What, what do you think of the fact, we touched this a little bit, but that everyone is documenting everything all the time. Obviously, it's not the same as telling a story, telling a research story. But, but everyone now seems comfortable with... Sometimes it's narcissism, sometimes it's something else, but everything is photographed or videoed constantly now. It's rare that we're actually not filming this, amazingly enough. But almost everything else does seem like it's filmed now. Do you think about sort of what that means for society, what it means for storytellers? I, I think I'm less concerned with me because I just assume that I'll continue to sort of you know, sow and reap in my back 40. But that, I think it has huge societal implications, mostly because when you use the word narcissistic and things like that, we're all now independent free agents. And I I, I do want to get around to, I think, a positive aspect of this, which is, you know, this independent free agency separates us from everybody else. We think we're connected, but we're actually deeply disconnected. And we look for ways to be connected. And I think that with the tsunami of of data that pours over us all the time, we are starved for curation. And so when the Civil War came out, when baseball came out, when jazz came out, when the war came out, when the national parks came out, all of those, those are the large, lengthy films, all the critics were sort of anxious that nobody would watch it because we were in an MTV generation with just a short attention span or that this would happen. And people did watch it. And the same sort of 35 to 40 million people sort of marched along to all of those films. When the Roosevelt's came out, another big series, the most recent one before Vietnam, they never said that again because they understand we're in a place where we binge watch. And what that represents is the desire to to trust in someone else's artistic judgment and to self-curate people so are that, watching 60 episodes of game of thrones and you know and just digesting it in, in big gulps and you know i defy you to do that with vietnam i think you're going to need to take a break i mean yeah. it's really intense and it's very immersive and there's a couple of episodes if you see them in context you just got to stop and we did that the veterans that we always had in every screening two or three veterans because their bs meters are so finely tuned they just get up and walk out and smoke cigarettes and come back a couple hours later and cry and hug each other and t- tell stories alone. That's kind of the immersive intensiveness, but we still want that to happen because we actually liberate ourselves from the tyranny of all the other voices, at least for that time. It's all right to go back and watch the kitten with the yarn. It's really okay. I'm not denigrating that sort of stuff, but I do think that I believe that all real meaning 
accrues in duration and that the work you're proudest of and the relationships you care the most about have benefited from your sustained attention. And so we do too many things in our lives today that are broken up and into sort of almost micro parts. And that when you have an opportunity, like that great long dinner that went on for a long time, or that party that was sustained, or that relationship that you've had over generations, and you realize the way in which you are defined in relationship to that person's happiness and and sorrows that's what matters so i think you know people have come challenged me all along about the long form and i go it's okay people will watch and they do that intensity you're talking about the, there's an episode you start off where you're interviewing a helicopter pilot and he's already agitated as he's telling you the beginning of the story and it's super intense and then it just escalates and you, i had to hit pause in my hotel room last night and said i got to if I smoked, I would go have a cigarette after yeah. that. And that's, no, that's, that's exactly that's right. Ron Farisi, a Hollywood uh, helicopter pilot, crew chief, who is just unbelievable. And he comes back in the film again, and I was just with him when we had a screening, and he's a, an amazing human being. You know, and I'll, I'll take you back to the beginning of our third episode, in which a gold star mother is talking about her son and the books that he loved more than the other siblings, and she read to him, and she's reading to him Henry V, the St. Crispin Day speech about how, you know, you men who were not here are lesser men because you didn't get bloodied in this thing. And this look comes across her face, in which it's almost oh my God, I sent him to war. And it's just, I mean, it's just a flash, but you, it, it's an intelligent and reflective person doing that. It's the exact opposite of Ron Farisi's sort of kind of smoke coming out of his ears. It's almost like a cartoon, but it's the same thing, which is you want to study war because it's so flippin' revealing of who we are as human beings. And it isn't just the bad stuff. That's kind of obvious. Man's inhumanity in man. I've got that in eighth grade. It's more complicated. It's about fellowship. It's about courage. It's about friendship. It's about loss. It's about love. It's about all these things. And war can, can actually be a, a pretty interesting vessel to contain the, these complicated people we call Americans. If you are listening at this point, we don't need to tell you to go watch this. Obviously, you're going to go watch the Vietnam War. You can't binge it, like Ken said. I mean, you could technically do it, you can do, we've but you do, shouldn't. The best we did was over three days, and we were like wrung out. And it hurt, and you know we cried, and and that's good. But you know, and there will be people who will watch it all. But I, I think you can space it out. PBS is showing the first five episodes over five consecutive nights, and then taking a couple of days off and hitting you with the Tet Offensive on the second Sunday night, and for five episodes. And each one of those nights, they're showing it twice. But it's available for streaming right away, and the DVDs, whatever those are called. The DVDs, are they uh, still around? Movies on TV, uh -huh. call them streaming things. I don't know what they're called. I remember 8-track cassette. I had 8-track. I've seen an 8-track cassette yeah, before. I had one. You guys are smart. You guys will figure out how to watch this. Ken, you're awesome. Thank you for coming by. God, the other way around. Thank you. This has been terrific. You know, we've been on this promo tour for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's really great. You're holding up pretty well. Well, no, it's good to have a conversation. Thank you. Because you guys are smart, you know how to find more of these. There are like 100 or so of these available wherever you're listening to this awesome episode. All we ask is that you tell someone else about it. You can tweet about it. You can Facebook about it. You can walk up to some human and say, I think you should listen to Recode Media. However you do it, that's all we ask. I'll thank my producers, Eric Johnson, Beth O'Connell, Chris Basil edits this. Thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, Recode Media listeners. This is Sarah Cliff. I host The Weeds with Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias. 
And each week we go really deep in the weeds on issues like healthcare, economics, and housing with all the latest from Washington. This is the podcast for people who want to know how governing works or doesn't work in the Trump era. You can find The Weeds on iTunes, Stitcher, really wherever you get your podcasts. Come check us out. Leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. Hi, this is Kara Swisher. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Our media industry listeners will already know this, but Recode is owned by Vox Media, and we wanted to include a special shout out because we're so proud to be associated with them. Vox Media is a fast-growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Its platform is what supports our growth here at Recode, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care most about. For us, that's tech news, reviews, and analysis. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands. There's Vox.com, which goes deeper into explaining the stories defining our world today. On SB Nation, they tell the story beyond the scoreboard. And there's many, many more, including Eater, Curved, Racked, and Polygon. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of depth and we believe in the best of our audiences. If you aren't going to go deep, where are you going? Vox Media.